Have you ever wanted to play the perfect tabletop game where story beats run smoothly and there's no awkward pauses between dice rolls? Yeah, me too. But since that's impossible, I did the next best thing and novelized my Witcher tabletop game to showcase the story in its cleanest form. The result is this podcast. I'm Jacob Gerstel, and this is Tales from the Witcher. Part audiobook, part actual play, part serialized adventure, and a whole new way to vicariously enjoy tabletop games. Welcome to the world of The Witcher, where monsters roam freely and the continent is once again at war. If you were hoping to follow the plight of Gale to Rivia, however, I'm not going to be doing that. Instead, I offer you the story of a not-so-merry band of degenerates who are making their way across the continent. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. The Last Moment 23. Zevo found Isabel hastily packing. Her room was a mess of rumpled clothes, scattered documents, and a dozen tiny knickknacks she had collected during her stay at Crag Ross. Zevo rapped at the open door, and Isabel smiled at the witcher briefly before returning to her bag. Good, you're here. Would you mind grabbing those clothes above the fireplace? Zevo did, and Isabel took the pile and shoved them into her bag by pressing her hands into it and hopping up and down. Zevo smiled at the sight. He had spent every evening with Isabel since the summit began, and he had observed countless small mannerisms like that. Isabel was full of them. Seems the packing is going well, Zevo said. Aye, and not a moment too soon, Isabel said. We tarried a week longer than we had to, endlessly bickering while Nilfgaard advances. Surely it was worth it, Zevo said. Sidorus got its trade agreement, after all. Isabel looked up and grinned at Zevo. Aye, a better deal than I had hoped. So the summit was a success. For now. But while the northern kingdoms figure out how to play nicely with each other, the black cloaks will continue unheeded. I hear them moving in on Vizima, which means they're close to Sidorus. It's best to be off as soon as possible. Zevo nodded. We'll be safe enough, once we're on the road. Isabel paused. She didn't turn around. We? she asked. The Witcher spoke slowly. He had been thinking about this for weeks, after all. It would do no good to bungle the explanation now. Yes, I thought I'd travel with you to Sidorus. I completed my contract with Bruver Hoog. He is going to repair Heron Kedic, so my school will have a home again. I figured that after that, I've earned some rest from the path, with you and Sidorus. Isabel turned around and walked to Zevo. She placed a soft hand upon his cheek and looked him in the eye. Oh, Zevo, you know that would never work. The Witcher felt his stomach drop. What do you mean? I mean the Sidarian nobles would never accept a duchess being in the company of a Witcher, even if he was hired help. Rumors would spread. I'd lose influence in the court, and it could be dangerous for both of us. Here, we got to do what we wanted. But things are different in Sidorus, among those people. I thought you didn't care about the opinions of the nobles, Zevo said. You told me as much. You said you would have given up the duchy for me to sail the seas. He regretted the change in tone instantly. Zevo felt the air heat up as anger flashed across the duchess's face. I would have when I was seventeen, but that was twenty years ago. You left me without a word back then. 
You made that choice, Zevo. Not me. This is your last chance to get her back, Zevo thought in a panic. But even then, he knew that wasn't true. His last moment passed twenty years ago, when he decided to cut his sworn oath to Isabel and leave Sidorus for good. He didn't even have the courage to say goodbye back then. He just left Isabel a short note explaining that the path called. But he couldn't even write the real reason he abandoned her. It had nothing to do with the path. It was because Zevo was too scared to settle down. That was all. Isabel's face softened. Her eyes watered. I'm sorry, Zevo. I thought you understood that this was temporary. That you thought I could be more than I was made to be. Zevo felt like he was going to puke. I know you'll understand. It's just... complicated. We could never... A knock on the door. Zevo spun to see Laudam, Isabel's assistant, standing in the doorway. A sly smile on his face, too, Zevo thought. The smug bastard heard everything. Excuse the interruption, Duchess, Laudam said, but there are more documents that require your attention. He eyed Zevo with satisfaction. I can give you a few minutes, if you wish. No, that's all right, Zevo said. I was leaving. Have a safe journey home, Duchess. Duchess Isabella Vardberg nodded. You always have a home in Sidorus, Zevo of Kavir. I hope to see you again soon. Zevo wanted nothing more, but doubted the path would take him to Sidorus. He would make sure of it, in fact. The Witcher shouldered past Lottam and made his way to the closest tavern. He drank himself into a stupor and blacked out. He couldn't recall the last thing he saw in his mind before the darkness took him. 24. It was biting cold on the target range. It seemed the peaks of Crag Ross were always cold, even in the summer. Mygard of Kavir loosed three bolts in rapid succession. They didn't hit their mark, but that was no fault of the crossbow. I think we've smoothed the process considerably, Mygard said. There's no more of that stick. Mm-hmm, Jeremiah said dismissively. He was in a bad mood. He had risen early that morning to meet Duke Haggard and tell him that he would be unable to deliver the repeating crossbows he had promised. Jeremiah had followed it by saying that he would soon deliver more than what he had promised, but it would take some time. Duke Haggard, Jeremiah's mentor and father figure, patted Jeremiah on the shoulder and said he trusted him. If he promised he'd come through, then that was enough for Haggard. He'd wait as long as he needed. It was the confidence in Haggard's voice that broke Jeremiah's heart. They said their farewells after that. Haggard told Jeremiah he was leading the soldiers to defend the Mahakam Pass, to keep Nilfgaard from cutting into Tamaria. Jeremiah wished him luck and promised to keep in touch by letter. Jeremiah was hesitant to leave the Duke, but knew he had to. Ezra and Mygard had asked him to meet at the target range, so Jeremiah watched them shoot their Keller-repeating crossbows without a hitch. He wanted nothing more than to leave Mahakam and get back on the road. I dare say we've perfected the design, my guard said proudly. Ezra nodded. So, now that we've figured out the design, we wanted to talk to you about our agreement. This grabbed Jeremiah's attention. He lowered his own crossbow. What's there to discuss? We agreed each of you would receive 15% of the profits. Well, you weren't exactly forthcoming with all of the details back then, the Nilfgaardian said. That was before we knew you could only sell to the Church of the Eternal Fire. That severely limits our markets, don't you think? The church will buy every crossbow we produce. You can count on it, Jeremiah said. Ezra glanced at Mygard and said, Be that as it may, this weapon is revolutionary. If only the church has it, 
then my people will suffer. I've lost too many family and friends in the last two northern wars. If I'm to allow this, we'll need a bigger cut. How much? Thirty-three percent. Each, Mygrad of Kavir said. An even three-way split. Well, you can have the thirty-four percent. Jeremiah felt his anger rising. This was the last thing he wanted to be doing, dickering with two hangers-on who happened to be in the right place at the right time. They had been helpful in setting up the production, true enough, but they weren't integral to his success. He was the one who designed the plowing crossbow. Unacceptable, Jeremiah said. It'll have to become acceptable to you. Ezra hefted her crossbow. My guard did the same. I doubt the Imperator of Nilfgaard will find 33% unacceptable, and I'd be seen as a hero to my people if I delivered a revolutionary crossbow design. Two against one were not great odds, Jeremiah knew, but his anger was still boiling. I can go up to 25% each. That's more than fair. Ezra and Mygard pointed their crossbows directly at Jeremiah. The craftsman saw a hard look in Ezra's eyes. It was the look of someone who had done this before. We've already discussed it, she said. We're willing to go down to 30%. But if you don't take it, well... She paused. What do you say, Jeremiah Keller? The wind howled. Jeremiah sighed. He raised his crossbow between Ezra and Mygard and fired three shots in rapid succession. The bolts splintered and split upon release, hitting both Mygard and Ezra. Mygard took a bolt in the eye and dropped without firing a shot. Ezra got hit in the throat and started to collapse, but at the last moment she fired. A bolt buried itself into Jeremiah's side. He screamed, but all the air rushed out of him. Jeremiah dropped his crossbow and put pressure on his side. Hot blood poured down his hands and produced steam as he hobbled over to Ezra, who kicked at the snow while her hands probed the bolt sticking from her neck. Blood bubbled from her mouth. It could have worked, you know, Jeremiah wheezed. We could have found a way to subvert the church together. Ezra gurgled something, then spat blood on Jeremiah's face. By the time he cleared his eyes, she was dead. Jeremiah wheezed and hauled the bodies behind the target range, deeper into the mountain. He nearly collapsed several times, but told himself the job needed to be done. When he found an acceptable spot, he used the tools from Mygard's bag to dig shallow graves. Blood streamed down his side and made his hands shake and his fingers go numb, but he told himself the job needed to be done and continued digging. He thought more than once he might die in the attempt, but he did not die. Jeremiah pushed the bodies in, trying not to look at his former partners as he filled their graves. Then he sat down and sawed most of the shaft sticking from his side. Blood still flowed, but the pain had lessened to a regular drumbeat of pain. Jeremiah didn't know if that was a good or bad sign. Based on his haggard and shallow breathing, he had likely cracked a few ribs. The wind blew, and it was cold. Jeremiah hobbled back to Crag Ross, covering the wound enough to get through the door. He found Carmignola and asked him to remove the arrowhead. The doctor removed it expertly. Jeremiah watched him clean the arrowhead, and he asked for it back. Carmignola shrugged and handed him the arrowhead. He didn't ask a single question the entire time. That was okay with Jeremiah. He would prefer never to talk about the ordeal if he could avoid it. 25. Ethramel loaded his horse Enye by himself. He wanted to make sure no one else touched his bags. 
They were, after all, newly loaded with Fistech. He was given a small crate's worth of supply from Vidmar, about a dozen pounds, and was told to reach out when he sold it. The sorcerer wasn't entirely sure how he would do that, but knew he'd find a way. He stood by Crag Ross's western entrance with Yana. The two stone doors looked exactly the same as the ones on the western entrance that he had entered all those weeks ago. He leaned against the stone door and tapped his foot. What in the plowing hell is taking those two dwans so long? Yana shrugged. We'll give them a few more minutes. They can always catch up to you if you're champing at the bit to leave. Ethramel didn't fancy heading into the war-torn kingdom of Tamaria alone, but he also didn't fancy staying in Mahakam with a small supply of Fistech in his bags. He would not be able to set up his smuggling routes from a dwarven prison cell. Yana spotted Jeremiah and Carmignola riding towards them five minutes later. The doctor looked ready to go, and the craftsman looked a little pale. What's more, Jeremiah had a dulled arrowhead hanging on a string around his neck. What happened to you? Ethermel asked. Nothing, Jeremiah said. We're ready to go. Good. Yana clapped her hands together. So, before you leave the safety of Mahakam, you should know that you'll come out near the city of Karius, which is currently under Nilfgaardian control. It shouldn't be too big of a problem, and if you keep heading north towards the Pontar Valley, you should be able to outrun the front, which you've all proven expert at. We're heading into Nilfgaardian-occupied territory. That's a detail you could have shared with us earlier, Jeremiah said. I would have, but I thought it might have discouraged you, Yana said. Best of luck out there. I'm never too far away, and you know where to mail your reports. Get me some good information on the Gutter King, and you'll be rewarded handsomely. And so Ethramel, Jeremiah, and Carmignola left Crag Ross. Most of the delegations had already departed, and the courtyard they crossed was stamped with snowy hoofprints. They started their slow way down the winding mountain switchbacks that reminded them of the path they took to get in. Only this path was steeper. Ethramel tried not to look over the side of the narrow path. Instead, he focused on the lone figure leaning against the rock face with his horse, not too far ahead. He had to get a little closer to see that the lone figure was tall. A little closer, and Ethramel saw that the lone figure had red hair. A little closer, and Ethramel smelled the familiar scent of stale booze. Zevorv Kavir's one eye was bloodshot, and his skin looked waxier than usual. His hair was disheveled, and he periodically swayed. He looked at the three and asked softly, Need a bodyguard? 26. Joanna Wernus, fifth-year student at Oxenford Academy, waited, and waited, and waited some more. It felt like she waited in the next room for hours while the three professors on the dais discussed and debated whether her dissertation was worth pursuing. Joanna knew that it was, and knew she defended herself well. She had all her documents in order, cleanly marked, and felt everything flowed nicely. If approved, she would spend the next two years conducting additional research and writing her dissertation. Then she could likely get it published. Joanna wanted that very much. Mostly, though, Joanna just wanted to get out of this stuffy building and get a drink at the ink pot with her dwarven friend Pillock. The door opened, and Professor Strill from the Department of History beckoned her in. Joanna once again found herself beneath the dais. She hoped it was for the final time. Apologies for the delay, Professor Rondledon from the Department of Philosophy said, but it seems there was some confusion about your dissertation's primary thesis. We were hoping you could clear it up for us. The Mahakam Summit of 1272, Professor Ladra from the Department of Natural History butted in, 
is a well-trod topic for academics. Many see it as a significant development in the Third Northern War, a point where the Northern Kingdom started to rally and slow the Nilfgaardian advance. There have been hundreds of texts written on the summit, and the consensus on its importance is nearly universal. Yet, after spending all this time putting together this documentation, your main point is that the Mahakam summit is of little historical significance? Am I understanding you correctly? Professor Rondelden cleared his throat. We were hoping you could clear it up, Joanna. Apologies if I was unclear, Joanna said, and thought. I was quite clear. She continued, The main thesis of my dissertation is not that the Mahakam summit of 1272 is of little historical significance. Quite the opposite. It's the first major turning point of the Third Northern War. Where my dissertation diverges from the common consensus is on the impact of the summit itself. Many historians point to it as the first step to northern unity against Nilfgaard, despite the summit itself being plagued with Nilfgaardian spies. Fair enough, but this unity came at a cost. Working together, the northern kingdoms could allow themselves to focus on the bigger Nilfgaardian threat, while ignoring the smaller but more dangerous threat, the Gutter King and his growing rebellion in the Pontar Valley. The Gutter Rebellion was generally kept in check when each kingdom was on its own and could deal with the smaller threats in front of them but now they were forced to divert manpower and resources to the northern war effort, which eased pressure on the rebels and allowed them to rally by the late summer of 1272. This was when they became a significant threat, and changed the war as we know it. So my dissertation will argue that the Mahakam summit, while technically a political success, actually hurt the northern kingdoms by allowing the Gutter Rebellion to flourish. Continue along this path, if you will, Professor Strill said. My dissertation will cover two main points, Joanna responded. The first is that the alliance to come out of the Mahakam summit was actually weaker than the northern alliance formed during the Second Northern War. The agreements to relax trade along the Pontar River and to keep the eastern Pontar Valley under Adonian control, though significant, were thrown together at the last moment, and weakened the resolve of each kingdom. The second point is that this new northern alliance took up all of the northern kingdom's attention, they became so focused on fighting Nilfgaard that they neglected the gutter rebellion that was growing across the Pontar Valley, even as the summit was occurring. I will argue that had the Mahakam summit not occurred, the gutter rebellion would have been crushed in its early stages, since many remembered the recent rebellion of Saskia the Dragon Slayer. Instead, the gutter rebellion was ignored and grew in strength, and caused widespread destruction in the north. So, as you see, it is not to say that the Mahakam summit wasn't historically significant. It clearly was, but I fear the summit's weaknesses haven't been fully explored, and that is what I want to focus on. Joanna could have continued, but she cut herself off and allowed silence to fill the room. Professor Strill beamed at Joanna. Seldom have I seen a student so articulately lay out their argument. We think it's a fine dissertation, Joanna, and we want to see more of it. Joanna blinked. So I, um... You passed, Professor Rondleton laughed. Your dissertation is approved. You're free to pursue it to your heart's content, and I would very much like to read it when it's all done. Even Professor Ladra smiled. Joanna nodded, and only then realized how exhausted she was. Thank you, she said. Now go and enjoy the rest of the day, Professor Strill said. There will be plenty of time to work through the dissertation's details later. We'll prepare a report and give it to you before the end of the week. Joanna felt dazed when she stepped out of the great library and into the sun. She shielded her eyes. There was still plenty of daylight left. Joanna took a deep breath and grinned. She found it funny that she had spent all morning beneath the dais, 
and now that she was out in the sun and fresh air, all she wanted was to join her friends for a pint inside the dark and cramped ink pot. Joanna headed that direction. Her friend Pillock, after all, had promised her a drink. That concludes The Last Moment, as well as Season 2 of Tales from the Witcher. We'll be back with Season 3 on August 4th. And I wanted to thank you all again for listening to the podcast. It really means a lot to me. Be sure to leave a rating and a review if you liked what you heard. The tale you just heard was written by yours truly. The Witcher novels are written by Anjev Sapkowski. The Witcher games are created by CD Projekt Red. And The Witcher Tabletop RPG is published by Aro Talsorian Games. If you enjoyed the episode, I encourage you to check out the sources that made it possible. Links to each are in the description. The music is by Eric Matias. Check him out at soundimage.org. And special thanks to my tabletop players, who bring Zevo, Ethramel, Jeremiah, and Carmoniola to life, and without whom, these stories wouldn't exist. Thanks for listening. I'll see you all soon on the continent. That'll do it for this episode of Tales from the Witcher. This podcast is written and produced by Jacob Gerstel. The Witcher novels are by Andrzej Zipkowski. The Witcher games are by CD Projekt Red. And The Witcher Tabletop RPG is by R. Talsorian Games. The music is by Eric Matias at soundimage.org. Be sure to leave a rating and a review, and to spread the word of this podcast far and wide. You can follow the podcast at Tales Witcher Pod on X, or at talesfromthewitcher.buzzsprout.com. Thanks again for listening, and I'll see you again next week.